Hi, this is literary agent Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media Group, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. I think it should really just be that query letter. It's a great practice for authors to learn, you know, to speak about themselves and their work in a concise way. You know, it's tough out there, but it's still worth trying. It's a great learning experience, and it's important to press onward, to have perseverance, you know, and and just not to get discouraged. Keep your chin up. But at the end of the day, I think it's about how well the book is written and the message the author is trying to get across. I think the message is really important, the moral of the story. And we're here today with uh, literary agent Mark Gottlieb from the Trident Media Group. Mark, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me on the show. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. We are continuing to expand our horizons with the guests that we feature here on the Grim Tidings podcast. We've definitely featured a lot of authors. We've had best-selling authors. We've had indie authors. And now we're expanding out a little bit. We want to include other folks in the industry as well because we think that it's it's important for folks to hear these stories as well. So we wanted to bring you on. Uh, you're one of the top agents in the country. We're going to have an editor on the show, and we're going to continue to uh, feature other folks uh, besides authors who contribute to this uh, uh, genre of grimdark and and fiction and uh, feature folks like yourself and uh, ask you questions and get your insights on the industry as well. So we do thank you for joining us on the program today, definitely. Oh, and thank you for the compliments. Uh, I think it's great you're expanding the show to include some industry professionals as well. So just to begin with, so we can just give um, our listeners an insight into the average everyday life of a New York literary agent like yourself. Could you walk us through uh, a day in the life, maybe through a Monday at the office there at Trident Media Group uh, and just what you do on an average day? Well, that's an interesting question because there really is no such thing as an average day in my job every day is really different from the next. Anything can happen, uh, especially when you're dealing with interesting and creative people. (laughs) And I think if you as a literary agent begin to feel the drudgery of every day being the same or one day melting into the next, then you're in trouble because you need to be a person who goes into the office every morning and thinks about how you want to reinvent yourself and do something new and uh, make the day just kind of bright and interesting. Otherwise, you just will kind of stagnate. So um, it's hard to say if there's really like a typical Monday, but some of the, the things you can sort of expect to do, I suppose, day from day to day is... Uh, their submissions on behalf of clients, calls, outreach to sign new authors, you know, lunches, drinks, or coffee with editors and authors, and uh, deal negotiation, contract review. And, uh, you know, sometimes we even talk with the uh, film and TV companies when they see a new deal of ours posted on Publishers Marketplace. Oftentimes, either a film and TV agency or a production company, or sometimes um, the studio will reach out to us directly and ask if the film and TV rights are available and if they can review. I guess I have sort of a uh, TV image of agents. You, you walk walk around wearing sunglasses all the time, and you're you're on your cell phone. You're making deals, wheeling dealing. Uh, what would be considered like a really really excellent day for an agent 
and what would be considered like a really horrible shitty day for an agent i just want to try to picture like what is the zenith and what is the uh, <laughs> n- nadir <laughs> i feel like that's kind of a caricatured you know portrait of what an agent is like based on you know maybe what you've seen in like a you know that like that TV show Entourage with uh, yeah, yeah. with Ari Gold, who's actually based off of a real agent <laughs> named Ari Emanuel, and the agency itself is based off of a you know a real agency too. But I'd say they're all different. Although some people maybe pander to some of those stereotypes. I suppose a great day is, you know, you close, you know, a six-figure or million-dollar deal or multi-million-dollar deal, you know, for your author, and then, you know, you post the deal, and the movie and TV companies are all over you like a cheap suit to get the book made into a movie or, or TV show. Or on the opposite side, I, I guess a shitty day would be. You know, your client fires you and they happen to be your biggest client and all of a sudden your life is over, which is why it really is that way. You live and die by a sword. I mean, if you're uh, there are agents out there who I can't understand why for the life of me they would live this way, but they kind of hitch their wagon to one big name author and all they do is deals for that one author and they just pray to god that that author never fires them because (laughs) their life would be over which is a crazy way to live i don't live that way and you know at our agency we don't recommend that most of our agents build their portfolio that way it's good to spread the chips far and wide well a shitty day for me would be like my students fell asleep or something so, so, like losing your whole livelihood, yeah, one, one shitty day. That's certainly. Uh, oh yeah, I mean that's probably why so many agents are neurotic. Although I suppose there are people who could fall asleep on you if you're pitching a project and you're not particularly good at it, or the editor just plain isn't interested in it. You could probably tell by their facial expressions if they're bored or disinterested or or just plain falling asleep. So give us an idea of how you became to be an agent and kind of your background and maybe what led you to decide to do that. So it's kind of interesting that you ask this question, actually, because most people you'll find in book publishing, whether it be on the editorial publishing side or the agenting side, kind of come to publishing in an accidental sort of way. They actually call it the accidental profession because for a long time you couldn't get an undergraduate study or really graduate study in publishing. People came to book publishing from the humanities. Maybe they were an English major and realized it's really tough to be an author and write a novel or they didn't want to stay in kind of the academia bubble or, you know, they didn't want to turn their English degree into a law degree because, uh, you know, some lawyers are, are just not happy having done that. You find actually a lot of a lot of authors are uh, former lawyers and doctors, believe it or not. Some of them even former accountants, uh, people who just didn't want to do safe professions. But I came to agenting because my family actually has a a background in book publishing. My dad owns and operates the agency where I work, Trident Media Group. He uh, has been in book publishing for over 40 years. He used to run the William Morris Literary Agency's book department. He was the youngest agent elected to their board of directors, and he's handled a lot of great names. I'll just throw out, you know, 
some of the names in the kind of science fiction and fantasy world just for the sake of the show being about grimdark but he's handled dean coons and sherilyn kenyon and kevin j anderson to name a few so whereas most people came to book publishing in, in sort of a odd or happenstance sort of way it was always intended that i would kind of follow in my father's footsteps and go into the family business which is why i just grew up around books and when it came time to go to school i, I went to emerson college in Boston, where they were one of the, I think, only two schools at the time offering an undergraduate study in book publishing. And it really appealed to me. So I went out for it and started a small press at the university and uh, even uh, was a founding member at their book publishing club, both, you know, of which are still in existence today. Wow, that's awesome. For anyone that's listening to the show that, that thinks maybe they want to be an agent one day, uh, maybe they're a writer or maybe they're an editor and maybe they just want to get in the business somehow. What is the most direct path to doing that? Or is there, a, uh, as you said, it's the accidental profession. Is there really a direct way to become an agent? Well, I feel like people come at it from a lot of different directions. Some people who were formerly editors and were maybe unhappy with their profession or Perhaps their publishing imprint closed and they needed to find other work. They sometimes become agents because the jobs are similar in that there are editorial aspects to it. And it's about finding new talent, recognizing talent. So that's one kind of circuitous way of going about it. Other people will, you know, now more and more there are undergraduate studies in book publishing, certainly Columbia University offers an intensive course. I think it's maybe like a, a four-month course or something where you can get like a certificate. And a lot of agencies will go to the Columbia Publishing course, um, their job fair, and look to find new young assistants there to sort of rise up in an agency and then begin their client list. Independently, going as an agent is, is a lot harder to do, I'd say than it is to, you know, kind of be with a bigger agency or established agency and to have all the support staff that an agency has, like an accounting department or a contracts department. And so you've, you've definitely excelled in your position, too, um, ranking as high as uh, number one. On PublishersMarketplace.com? Yeah, PublishersMarketplace.com, ranking you as high as number one. What does that actually entail to, to rank that high? Well, I re I've ranked number one in the categories for science fiction and fantasy. I've ranked that way for other categories and then for overall deals among literary agents. For me, I rank by volume, the volume of deals I do. So I was finding a lot of authors, doing a lot of deals for them, really to just get my name on the scoreboard and, and get the attention of authors. And some authors I... I hope they check that site. There's a lot of good information there. That's where all the industry news and deals are announced. Certainly, that's what the film and TV community watches to see what the book world is doing. So there were probably some authors who saw that and decided to reach out to me as a result. But what that really took was just a lot of dedication, a lot of reading and perseverance, because believe me, for every deal I was able to do, there was probably a lot of rejection along the way there, both for me and the, the author. 
So you've then you you found success with being able to find talented authors and then connecting those authors with the right uh, publishers to get their their books out. Yeah, it's really my job to sort of I guess state this in the most unglamorous of ways is <laughs> it's what a talent it's no different than what a talent agent out west does in California for a movie director or actor, only we're a boutique in the sense that we focus on authors and their careers. We're like an, an employment agency for authors. We bring authors to the publisher, then in turn to a wider audience. So you could call us a literary matchmaker or you know, whatever you like, but um, really it's about finding the right editor and publishing imprint for the author and their book to find a home at. So you just mentioned, you know, finding the right agent or finding the right home. Mm -hmm. um, uh, your specialty is particularly science fiction and fantasy, or do you dabble in other genres as well? I dabble in a lot of other genres. I, you know, rank number one in the category for graphic novel deals, which I suppose oh. has some close kinship with science fiction and fantasy, depending on the subject matter. I've done a lot of thrillers, mystery crime women's fiction, even some uh, nonfiction books, but they tend to be more pop culture or joke-oriented or kind of spoofy sort of books. Yeah, I would say mostly mostly in those areas, but really I do every kind of fiction, nonfiction, even children's books, both middle grade, young adult, and picture books. So would you say there's any difference in dealing with the different genres, or is it all kind of the same? Certainly, there's difference genre to genre. What you'll most often find is many literary agents actually do primarily nonfiction books because it's just a safe bet for them. You know, nonfiction being subject driven, even if the author's not doing well, they can sell the next book to a publisher easily if the subject matter is interesting, uh, you know, regardless of kind of how maybe the author has done in the past whether their track record be good or bad. And nonfiction is also easy to sell because you can sell it on proposal basis, which is essentially, you know, a few sample chapters, outline, author bio, and, you know, things like that. Whereas fiction is a lot different. It takes a certain skill set to sell that kind of book because it's a much more subjective business. It really depends on the quality of the writing, the author's track record, and it needs to be fully written. Fiction really cannot be sold on a proposal basis. Maybe only if it's from a very highly established author and they're already with you know numerous publishers or something like that. But for the most part, it needs to be fully fleshed out. And um, a lot of agents can't both financially and maybe for the sake of their, their wits deal with the amount of rejection that goes along with trying to build an author's career in the area of fiction and the uh, just all the stresses and strains that go along with it. Whereas our agency, it's really our bread and butter. It's one of the reasons why our agency has ranked consecutively for over a decade, number one, both for fiction and nonfiction in overall deals, so the volume of deals we do and six-figure-plus deals and higher, which is the highest monetary category you can rank for. Uh, we rank that way, yeah, in both fiction and nonfiction, but really where the money is at in book publishing is, is in fiction. With nonfiction, you have to do a big kind of volume of deals to keep the business going. Frankly, you know, it's more exciting and interesting. I'm, it's not to speak ill of nonfiction books, but storytelling and you know big picture ideas are 
I think what gets a lot of people interested. My list tends to skew more toward the fiction side, even though I, I do occasionally do some nonfiction books that, that will interest me. So speaking of fiction authors, uh, how we got connected with you is through our past guest, Deborah Wolf. Uh, we had on the show, I think, episode three, four, or five. Uh, she was our guest, and you are her agent, and you were able to set her up with a deal with Titan Publishing. Um, I think we, what you landed her a trilogy for her fantasy series. Yes, and I think it's it's even planned at some point to be a six book series. When when Debbie came to me, she said that. Well, first of all, it was all one book. I think she mentioned this on your show. It was it was over six hundred thousand words, and I had to say, <laughs> I had to say to her, you know, do you think there could be six or maybe even eight books here? And I think you know. <laughs> She realized that, but she was out. She was really out to prove a lot of things. Like she mentioned on your show in talking about controversies in Grimdark, she wanted to really challenge the establishment. Her attitude was, okay, George R. R. Martin's going to write a 300,000-word book. I'm going to write a 600,000-word <laughs> book, you know? So she was really trying to outdo a lot of kind of the the boys club, I think, that science fiction and fantasy can sometimes be. So I respected her for that. But when she uh, came to me, I just thought her prose were so beautifully written. Each sentence of hers was like a little pearl of wisdom strung along a very, very long necklace in this epic fantasy series of hers called Song of the Sun Dragon. The first book is The Heart of Atulon. And um, it, it just felt like a mixture of kind of the darker folkloric tales of Arabian Nights mixed with um, kind of, I would say, the um, some of the tales of Guy Gabriel Kay set in the Middle East. Or, or even if you just took George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones and just had it set among like the Dothraki people. So I thought it was unique and that it would really stand out there and that it was timely because she created this world where it was really about the plight of indigenous people caught between two world superpowers. And right away it clicked in my mind. I thought of Syria caught between Russia and the U.S. and the other superpowers of the world. So it's, it's very timely for now, but... Um, and using using Debbie as a kind of our uh, uh, case example of how you work with authors, could you kind of just give us a brief overview of how she initially engaged you and how the process went for you getting her set up with her deal? So Debbie queried me kind of just through our website, and um, I don't think she was expecting to hear from me so soon or to get a deal so soon. But um, I read her query letter, and I thought her query letter was beautifully written, which is usually a very good indication that the manuscript is also going to be well-written. I think as an author, you need to think about how you present yourself to others. And the query letter is very important because it's like your storefront. It's the first impression everyone has of you. And an agency like ours, we get hundreds and hundreds of query letters a day. So there's no time to read through every letter. Most agents, I'm supposing, are going to stop after the first two sentences if, if they're not grabbed after that. And with Deborah's query letter, I was grabbed right away and hooked to the very end, and I requested the manuscript immediately. I took the day off of work to sit at home and read her manuscript. So that is important as an author, I think, yeah, to really nail the query letter. I think what makes for a good query letter is upfront, 
you have the hook, which is like your thesis in an essay. In one or two sentences, you know, what the book is really about. Then a body paragraph or two with some of the plot details and you can speak to more of the literary merits of the book, or I would mention, you know, comparative titles too early on in the in the letter, and then the last paragraph could be a little bit about the author, a bio on them, and some of their relevant writing experience or credentials. So Debbie had just nailed the query letter, and um, I think that's what got her foot in the door. Is there any specific things that agents get that immediately would turn you off? Because I know there are uh, lots and lots of people must be sending queries and some people don't really know. Uh, there, there seems to be an art form of, of a query. I mean, there's books about making queries. There's numerous websites about it. What would you say is something that could either get you rejected very early through the query letter or could get you rejected very early in the process of reading the actual manuscript? Well, there are so many turnoffs, I'd say, in receiving queries or being approached from authors, you know. In my opinion, I think it's a controversial thing because I feel there's one way to do the query letter and just a few ways to do it right, which makes it easy. But then then again, there are so many ways to do that wrong. <laughs> so one thing I don't like to see is, you know, in a letter that's impersonal that says, Dear Agent, this is a multiple submission. And then you're <laughs> on an email chain of like 50 other agents. I can tell you right away most agents are going to delete that email because they're going to think to themselves, it's not worth my time to deal with this. And some of the smaller agents might be thinking to themselves, you know, the ones with smaller agencies, not to speak pejoratively or anything of them, but they might be thinking, you know, I can't rumble with the big guys, so I'm, I'm going to step out. And then the bigger agencies might be thinking to themselves, you know, I have so many clients already. My plate is full. I have big name authors. I don't have to deal with this crap. <laughs> so, you know, where does that leave you as an author? I think it's better to really take your time with the querying process, find the agent that's the right fit for you, go on their website, read what their querying process is. You know, for us, we have a form on our website we like for authors to use. We give an indication there of the type of information they should present in the query letter, and they should wait to hear from us. I don't think it's good to nag the person um, unless they request your manuscript, in which case, you know, the person kind of has a duty to get uh, back to you. But some of the other things I don't like to see in the query letter is sometimes authors will try and flatter you with a lot of compliments up front. And I don't think agents need that. They, their egos are big enough as it is, a lot of them. And um, the other thing is uh, some authors will query me and tell me they had self-published, but it didn't go well. Or they'll tell me they were leaving another agent, but they won't explain why. So I can't, you know, kind of guess at what the publishing baggage might be. Oh, definitely do not post your whole manuscript in the body of the email. In fact, don't send it. Yeah, don't send it unless it's requested, you know. I think it should really just be that query letter. It's a great practice for authors to learn, you know, to speak about themselves and their work in a concise way. Yeah, definitely a laser-focused approach to presenting yourself and your and your fiction and your background, I think, is definitely key. So um, how often, Mark, would you say that, that you're intrigued by the query letter and you get the manuscript and it turns out to be shit? I'm a lot easier going than a lot of other agents. A lot of authors will get through to me because, for one, I'm a lot younger. 
which, you know, is a good thing. I don't have a lot of this publishing baggage you'll find maybe with an older, more established agent. My plate is not as full. A lot of authors will get more attention and be bigger fish in my pond than they would be elsewhere. And frankly, I think it's a business of, of young people. You need that energy to really do this kind of stuff. But I will, you know, usually request, you know, maybe one in a 10. It depends. It's been, it's on bad days, it's been like one in 100. <laughs> but then of those, you know, 10 manuscripts I've requested, maybe one will go on to you know, where I'll get an offer of representation from me. But then from there, you know, it's a matter of convincing the publisher to publish the book. So, you know, it's tough out there, but it's still worth trying. It's a great learning experience. And it's important to press onward, to have perseverance, you know, and, and just not to get discouraged. Keep your chin up. Yeah, I know I have some, uh, I know some people that have queried agents and, and had no luck. Um, and they had some issues with that. And I think it, it par partially because it could be because they're an unproven author and they have no sort of track record. H how would you say that factors into decisions that agents make? Well, the track record is an interesting thing. I'd say with a debut author, if like in the case of Deborah Wolf, you know, that was her first book. She had no track record, which is an indication to publishers and agents that Okay, here's a new person. She has no history, good or bad. There's a 50-50 chance with this author. Whereas with someone who has maybe had a good career at some point but experienced a slump or it's just kind of been all bad since the beginning, you know, publishers are not going to take a risk. They're more, more of the mindset, once burned, twice cautious. And agents will be the same way. In, I think I'm kind of an exception to the rule where there are some authors who had been self-published their work spoke to me. We, you know, were quiet with publishers about the fact that they were self-published or I had them kind of reinvent themselves, you know, maybe change their author name to a pen name or uh, remove the self-published edition that maybe hadn't done so well online because, you know, it's hard to make a success of self-publishing with all the other, you know, self-published books floating around in the ether. You really needs a lot of of marketing and publicity attention that a publisher has in their sales and marketing force. It takes a whole village of people to make a book a success. So I'd say the track record is really important. If you've, you know, been having some difficulties and as an author, I think it's good to look in the mirror. Even though you don't like what you might not what you, what you might see, it's important to say to yourself, okay, what have I been doing wrong? Have I been approaching the query process in the wrong way? Is my track record bad? Should I kind of disguise the fact that I've been self-publishing to little success? Or maybe I need to reinvent myself, you know? It works for people. Stephen King was not always the Stephen King we know and love. He had written books which were unsuccessful. They um, just didn't do well. He changed his pen name to Stephen King. Then later on, when he became this big brand name author, he took his books and repackaged them with his name of Stephen King. And all of a sudden they were selling well. So it's a tricky game to play, but you got to play the game. So speaking to speaking to self-publishing, we've had several guests who are self-published authors. And we had Anthony Ryan on recently who started out as a self-published author and then 
course, went on to a huge success as a traditionally published author. Uh, what is the feeling in the industry right now uh, from an agency's perspective about hybrid authors, like authors that do both self-publishing and traditional publishing? Well, generally speaking, there is kind of a, a negative air toward self-publishing, whether you make you know moderate success of it or not, because, I mean, I think it's just foolish snobbery on the part of those people to think that way. But, you know, part of it is that there isn't the same level of quality maybe you experience in traditional print publishing. And a lot of agents have this attitude where, yeah, there are some outliers out there like Andy Weir, you know, yeah, yeah. was a self-published author. He tried going the traditional route. It didn't work. So he serialized The Martian. All of a sudden, an editor at Knopf, uh, part of Random House, picked it up. And it became this huge success. But And same thing with Hugh Howey's Wool, you know. But for every one of those authors, there are a million authors who are trying to do the same thing and won't ever succeed. The average self-published book on Amazon in the lifetime of the book will sell maybe five copies. That's a reality. Authors will put the book out there. The book will live in perpetuity on a server. But there's no real attention given to the book. They think they're going to win the lottery because they hear about these self-publishing success stories, but it doesn't always go that way. In the case of hybrid authors who are maybe simultaneously self-publishing and doing print traditional print publishing with a major trade publisher, you know, sometimes that can work to their advantage when the publications are scheduled in the right way and they don't end up cannibalizing one another. But for the most part, I think the greatest benefit is to have, really, a traditional print publisher because it means more hands on deck, which means a ship will go faster. Whereas self-publishing, I think, makes more sense for projects that maybe a traditional publisher typically wouldn't be interested in, like a novella or short story collection, since publishers typically publish full-length works from authors. So I think there is kind of a place for the self-publishing sphere, but... It can be good for our authors in a way, too. It's, a, it's like what the Farm League is to Major League Baseball. It's a great way for authors to get noticed by publishers if they try to go the traditional route and it doesn't work to their favor. They could try and make a success there and get noticed. One thing, one thing I think about sometimes with, with agents is maybe they have a personal taste of, um, well, they all have personal their own personal tastes. Uh, just like any other reader would. Has there ever been a case of where you read something that you think is really amazing and you're like, wow, I really want to get this in front of people. But then from kind of a marketing perspective, you think, okay, this this is going to be really fucking hard to sell and it's just going <laughs> to not work. Yeah. Oh, the bean counters always have something to say about how a book will sell. I mean, more and more in editorial meetings, the sales force has a lot to say at book publishing companies. You know, it used to be more so editorial driven where people would just make decisions based on their feelings about something they read. And it's kind of strange because, you know, the book publishing business was a much healthier business at that time. So it's really hard to say whether it should be a business driven by metrics or if it should be a business that's more subjective. At the end of the day, it really is a subjective business, though, because ultimately it's how a manuscript, you know, really appeals to you, you know, if it reaches you on some level. You know, not every 
agent or editor will publish a book based on their taste. Certainly, though, if they're an editor with an imprint that has kind of a top-down attitude of what type of book they need to publish, they will do a certain kind of book. They have to. But an agent is a lot freer to represent what they're interested in. Some agents will only do a certain kind of book. I know there are agents who only do romance or only do young adult books. You know, my taste is kind of all over the place. And then my personal taste in my own personal life and what I read is vastly different from the kind of books I represent and sell to publishers in order to make a living. But it being a subjective business, you know, you're always going to run into an instance where someone will look at a book like like a painting hanging in a museum, you know? Someone will go and say, that painting shouldn't be hanging in the, this museum. And then an, the other person will say, are you kidding me? You can't call that a piece of crap. That thing costs millions of dollars. Of course it should be hanging in, in this museum. So you're, you're always going to get that. It's tricky. You just got to find the right home for the book. If you really believe in it, you have to push onward. We've had authors who have been rejected by 80 publishers. I'm not even kidding. 80 publishers, like one of our authors, Marlon James, who wrote the, this year's Man Booker Prize winner, A Brief History of Seven Killings. It won that book prize by unanimous decision, but every publisher passed on it. Even so, we kept on beating our drum, believing in that book. It went on, you know, now it's on the New York Times bestseller list. It's a it's a great book. We have a lot of success stories like that. It's unfortunate. It wasn't always that difficult. But like I said, a lot of book editors are kind of under the thumb of these bean counters at these companies that make them have financial considerations and look at a profit and loss statement before they even consider taking an author on, whether they like the book or not. Yeah, I, t I try to think sometimes if there's certain writers that were really popular, like a Jack Vance or Gene Wolfe or some of the fantasy writers that are a little bit harder to get into. I wonder if they would succeed on the same level nowadays if it's more concerned with making money than the art, the art form itself. You make a really good point because one of the considerations, for instance, with Deborah Wolfe's book was that it was 600,000 words, you know. It's good and well to go on an epic journey in a fantasy book. In fact, a lot of people kind of expect that if you read a George R. R. Martin book or a Robert Jordan book. But publishers nowadays are looking at their cost of printing. You know, the longer the book, the more expensive it's going to be. Not only that, the longer the book, the higher they have to price the book in bookstores. And they're thinking about what the customer experience is in a bookstore. Do I buy the $25 hardcover? Or do I buy the $35 hardcover? So they're looking at their margins. They're thinking about their cost of production, shipping, warehousing, and all of that. So it's difficult to be kind of what an author used to be in certain respects. But at the end of the day, I think it's about how well the book is written and the message the author is trying to get across. I think the message is really important, the moral of the story. What would you say are some emerging fiction trends? Is there any anything hot and new that's coming out as far as genre goes that you guys kind of have your uh, eyes on? I think what you're seeing a lot now in science fiction is more so kind of sci-fi thrillers or techno thrillers, um, kind of harder sci-fi. It's all sort of with the buzz of The Martian, you know. Now publishers kind of want their own version of that book. You'll always see that. Wherever there's a success with one author, it's kind of like a wave. Publishers are going to try and ride it. 
they want to at least be the next in line if they couldn't be the ones to have published Game of Thrones. They want to be able to get, you know, the next best thing. So I say to always watch in terms of trends, you know, kind of what's on the forefront commercially of science fiction and fantasy publishing. I think right now the market is soft to paranormal romance. It's softer to urban fantasy. You know, you're seeing less traditional sort of uh, fantasy taking hold. I think that's why Grimdark is sort of relevant and in the now. So always a good indication. Just watch the New York Times bestseller list or the Amazon Top 100 and see what's trending in science fiction and fantasy. Look at the uh, categories of that book for what genre it's ascribed to, and you'll you'll know. Um, I mean, if you're looking to, you know, kind of be an author that's I'm not saying pandering to an audience, but wants to to write successfully, maybe as a career author. And how would you say the subgenre of grimdark is faring in today's industry? And do you see it growing or diminishing? And what's the overall health of of that subgenre, since that is tends to be our focus here on the show? Well, we talked about this a little bit before the interview. Actually, you'll remember. You know, I had likened it to how Jim Morrison was, you know, an alternative for the hippies, um, you know, people who were sick of the, the flower and love music. They wanted something darker and more interesting. And Jim Morrison was kind of this early precursor to today what beca- became, um, I think, like punk rock and heavy metal and, you know, and kind of darker types of rock and roll. Yeah, spirit of rebellion. Yeah, it is sort of the spirit of rebellion. People got sick of the same old crap that was just always out there. They wanted something new and different. And I think Grimdark has come along to appeal to varied tastes. So do you think, for example, Grimdark as a genre can continue to grow or is it kind of a niche? I never know if I'm saying that word right. Niche. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Grimdark has always been around in a sense. Like that that author, Nikolai Gogol, I think he had written that. It was either a novella or a short story about um, this necklace that goes missing. Or take Edgar Allan Poe, for instance. You know, He was kind of like one of the founding fathers of the Grimdark kind of sensibility. So I think that stuff will always be around, though. will always be a place uh, for it. It's just a matter of how much, but there's definitely a readership there. And Grimdark came into the forefront because it was an underrepresented readership. That's why it's more so out there now. And one other thing that kind of ties into Grim, uh, I guess it's Grim in some ways, and I guess it's not Grim in other ways, but there's a website called Predators and Editors. I'm curious to what agents think about that website because often you know uh, agents that try to fleece authors or try to screw them over on yeah. money deals get outed on that website so what is the what do agents typically think about something like that you know our agency doesn't have those sort of problems because we're a very established agency we've been around for over 15 years and our company controllers you know have been in the book industry even longer we follow industry practices and norms so it's not morally ambiguous or a gray area for us there are right and there are wrong things to do 
there are some agencies out there who, for instance, will, I'm not going to name any names, but they will charge authors to read their submission, which I think is wrong because there are agencies that kind of try and make a living just of doing that. And there's no guarantee your manuscript is really getting read or getting serious attention. It's just the agency is racking up, you know, 10 bucks or 30 bucks a submission, which is bullshit to me. We don't charge authors anything at all, except for our commission, which is the standard 15%. You'll find that at most any other agency you go to, certainly if they're a legitimate literary agency and not trying to undercut the business of another agency. Because our work is commission-based, we're more goal-oriented than, for instance, and not to speak ill of lawyers, but they have an hourly rate. So whether you succeed or not, the lawyer might not really care because they're getting paid by the hour to review your contract or defend you legally, whereas we don't get paid until you as an author succeed. So the relationship with an agent really should be, and with us, it's a lot more parallel or symbiotic, and um, we're kind of goal-oriented in that way. We want to see things done because when you do well, we do well. When you don't do well, we don't stand to benefit from that. So an agent should not ever be at odds with an author, should not do anything detrimental uh, to their career. And overall as a whole, where do you see the, the publishing industry, in your opinion, going in the next five or ten years? That's an interesting question. It's difficult to predict. I don't really have a crystal ball. But sometimes one thing that kind of wanders across my mind is um, kind of how format has changed in reading. You know, a long, long time ago in the past, when publishers were much, much smaller, they were like, some of them were owned and operated just by, you know, families. They were very, it was a very small kind of cottage industry. You would uh, subscribe to like a publisher's books, kind of the way that people subscribe to Netflix or the way that people avidly watch one TV channel because they like all of the programming there. And the publisher would ship you like a wooden box of um, all of their books that they were publishing in that season or that year. And you would be able to have all the flavors of that publisher, read them by the fireside. Then, you know, bookstores came along and that really changed things. There was a point where, you know, books were being published then less in hardcover and then all of a sudden in in uh, mass market paperback pocket sized books really came along because during the first world war they wanted to send uh, dime novels like cheap five or ten cent novels to gis to be able to read and carry in their pocket while they were at war and publishers at that time really felt like those kind of books were meant to be like lowbrow books like the stuff that was undeserving of being published in hardcover as literary fiction and that all really changed when authors who were kind of relegated to that mass market space like you know dean coons and patricia cornwell and authors like that found their way moving out of the mass market space into being primarily published in hardcover because publishers were able to window their publications such that they could take advantage of hardcover sales. You could only get it, you know, the hardcover book from Dean Coons when it was released. If you wanted the trade paperback, you'd have to wait four months. If you wanted the mass market paperback, you'd have to wait four more months. So for cheaper editions, 
you'd have to wait. And publishers were smart how they did that. It's kind of like how the movie companies, you know, if you want to see the movie, you got to go to theaters. Movie companies aren't going to be stupid enough to put it on Netflix and Blu-ray at the same time it's in theaters. Uh, publishers, I don't give them as much credit, though. Based on what has happened with Kindle and Amazon, publishers now made this foolish decision of releasing a cheaper ebook edition simultaneously with the either trade paperback or hardcover edition, which has proven disastrous for publishers. It's destroyed a lot of the print business. A lot of genre fiction has migrated toward ebooks. Publishers created their own nightmare. And sort of now what's going on is, I mentioned Netflix before, now a lot of companies which are kind of like Netflix for books are coming along like Scribd and Oyster primarily, or, you know, Kindle has something too similar to it called Kindle Unlimited. It's a similar business metric with Scribd and Oyster. You pay a monthly fee of like, I think it's like $9.99 or something. You get each and every ebook free. The authors don't get paid unless more than 10% of their book is read. It's changed the way people are writing. Now people are trying to write shorter books, right? Because <laughs> if you write a 600,000 word book, people are only reading less than 10% of it and then discarding the book. You know, you won't get you won't see your royalty on that book. Whereas in the past, people bought books and brought them home. They didn't always read all of them. Maybe they resold them or just kept them on their shelves. It's been creating problems for authors. So that's one thing. Also, with some of these subscription programs, most of the books there are backlists or previously published titles, but that's beginning to change. And what publishers are going to have to do is they're going to have to get a lot wiser to this. If they want to protect their business, keep it from getting cannibalized by ebooks in this way, they're going to have to really think about windowing their releases again and going to smarter sort of pricing where maybe either the publisher can uh, set the price or on the book or something like that. You actually gave me a great idea for a subscription service. I'm going to call it a wooden box. And I'm yeah. just going to fill a wooden box full of books and send it, send it to people. Yeah. Make and, it so they can only open it with like a crowbar. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're going to be books that you cannot get digitally anywhere. And uh, I, I like Wu-Tang Clan's uh, format. Do, do you know about their their album that sold like as a piece of art? There's only one copy of it. So I'm thinking like in the future, authors may have to just like write one, like say like if Stephen King only wrote one book and it was printed, there were 10 copies of it. Mm. Then, then like you had to auction basically to get those books and there was no digital version or anything. So if, if, wooden, if wooden box works, then I could become a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> you should try it. I mean, why not? There, there are some publishers who are really into the art of the book, and they do similar things, not particularly that. But that's kind of where I see the book business going. I think uh, reading in print or hardcover is going to become like a nostalgia for maybe a certain generation. And I think young kind of hipsters will like it the way that they like vinyl records, you know? They, they go to these vinyl record shops, they buy... I mean, I have a ton of vinyl records at home. It's a great technology, right? That is a technology that has been perfected for listening to music. There's no... I mean, there are easier and cheaper ways to listen to music, but in terms of quality and experience, there's no better way to listen to music. It's the same way with the hardcover book. The hardcover book is a technology that has been perfected. And... Um, 
for some people, they, they will like the feel and, and the uh, warmth of having a book. But I think it will be, again, like a nostalgia sort of thing. And for publishers, they'll publish in print in smaller numbers and they'll primarily publish in ebook. Whereas in the past, publishers were more interested in, yes, acquiring the ebook rights with the print rights, but ebook rights were considered more so like um, ancillary kind of right. No doubt we'll have uh, a couple of authors probably listening to the show who probably have a manuscript ready who probably want to get it queried. Are you currently taking submissions? And if you are, what kind? And then how would people submit their works to you if they wanted to get in touch with an agent and try to get their work published? Thank you for asking. I am taking submissions. Um, you know, as it pertains to this podcast, I imagine a lot of the authors tuning in are science fiction and fantasy authors. And our agency is wonderful at representing that genre, you know, or those genres. We have represented Kevin J. Anderson, the Frank Herbert Dune estate. Formerly, we handled the Isaac Asimov estate. So we did that iRobot movie deal for Will Smith. We've handled Tad Williams and Sherilyn Kenyon and even David Wong, who wrote um, John Dies at the End, which is kind of a cult classic in, in horror. So, you know, and, and of course, Dean Coons in the past, I had mentioned him too. I think it's a great home for authors writing science fiction and fantasy. I do represent many other genres, though. If they want to reach out to us, they should go to our website at Trident Media group.com there's a page there called submissions contact us they can go there fill out the form select the agent they'd like to submit to i suggest they meet up on each of the agents and see who might be the right fit for them or you know they can select my name if they like and uh yep you can just submit your query letter through that form thank you again so much for just for taking the time to chat with uh, philip and myself and uh, best of luck to you in the future okay thank you so much again for having me i appreciate it Thanks again to Mark Gottlieb for joining us on the show. You can download more episodes or find us online at facebook.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast or hit us up on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. You can download the show on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to leave a review. We'll see you next time on the Grim Tidings Podcast. <laughs>